you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. We're going to finish our time in Proverbs this morning. And what we see in Proverbs 31, I think, is a climax in the book of Proverbs. It's a fulfillment of the book of Proverbs. And it's a foreshadowing of the book of Proverbs. So, Proverbs chapter 31. And it's so cool. When I was writing this out, I thought... Are you serious? I can land on Proverbs 31 on Mother's Day? Like the Spirit engineered that. Okay, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. All right, Proverbs chapter 31. Let's look, start at verse 10, and we'll read through verse 31. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I lift up the folks that are in this room, the congregation that it represents. And I pray that you would call us to wisdom. I pray that you would enable and empower us to wisdom. I pray, Father, that this morning that you would recalibrate and reset our hearts so that we are not taking on the values and the false wisdom of this world and all of its deceit and charmful beauty, but instead, O oh Lord, that we would commit ourselves to your countercultural ways that is according to our actual design and your actual delight. I pray for moms that you'd give them hope and encouragement today. I pray for dads and children, that you would call them and raise them up, that, Lord, they would praise the wise woman in their home and that they would be champions of wisdom themselves. I pray for those who are sad and mourning and grieving this morning. You tell us that you draw near to the brokenhearted. And I pray that this morning you would draw near to those. We ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Is there any job on earth that requires a more varied expertise than motherhood? Because if there is, I can't think of one. 
So there was a, a lady who wrote back in, for Focus in the Family back in 1994 a, an article called, What in the World Does a Mom Do All Day? Uh, her name is uh, Linda Weber. And so this is just part of what she wrote. And I, and I brought this up there because I want to be able to read this to you exactly uh, what she has. So this is what he, she says, who she says a mom is. She's a baby feeder, changer, bather, rocker, bup, burper, and hugger. She's a picker-upper of food, debris, and vomit, while also being a linguistic expert on to toddler dialect. She's a teacher of everything, from how to chew food, to how to drive a car, to how to change a diaper. She's an assistant on school projects and a censor of TV, movies, and books. She's a reader of thousands of children's books, planner and hostess of innumerable parties, and the resident executioner of ants, roaches, and wasps. She's central control for getting the appliances fixed on the carpet or the carpet shampooed and the appointment desk for the family's visits to the doctor, the dentist, the orthodontist, the barber, and the mechanic. She's the resident historian in charge of photo albums, baby books, and school records. She's a furniture refinisher, a food preservation expert, an oven cleaner, an important document keeper, an emergency medical technician, and an ambulance driver. And she's a prayer warrior, an existential crisis manager, and a trauma counselor. There's no job on earth as varied as that of a mother, is there? And you find yourself, if you slow down and you try to describe to someone all that is required of you as a mother, it's really difficult to come up exactly with what that would, what that would look like. In fact, some have tried to quantify what a, a stay-at-home mom would be worth in, for a salary, and they usually come up with a figure between $130,000 and $180,000 a year to have around-the-clock care the way that a mother does. But you know, my experience is, is that most of our mothers aren't thriving. And most of our families aren't thriving. Most of our mothers are anxious and dissatisfied. Many of them wonder if they have any purpose at all in this world. Or if they're noticed by anyone at all. Many of them wonder if what they're doing actually matters in the grand scheme at all. And so what our mothers need, I think, this morning is both hope and truth. Hope and truth. And I think real hope only comes by means of real truth. And that's what I think we see in Proverbs chapter 31. Now, Proverbs chapter 31 is much more multivaried and multidimensional than probably what we're able to see with the modern eye. First of all, it's, it's a work of art. It's, it's, it's a poem. Some would call it a eulogy. But it's brilliantly composed. It's actually an acrostic. You, you guys know what an acrostic is, right? So if you take, it, it has a, uh, every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the beginning of every line of the poem, if you were to see this in the original language. So it would be like A is for awesome mom, B is for best mom, C is, and, and you could keep going on, right? It's, but not only is it an acrostic, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, it's, it's what we call a chiasm. That it's, it's building and it has these corresponding parts, and you'll, you'll see more of what I'm talking about in a minute. So, so, it's, so literarily, it's very complex, and it's, it's meant to teach us the, the culmination of wisdom that has been personified, really, throughout the book of Proverbs. But what may also surprise you, and I'm going to talk about this more in a minute too, is that Proverbs was not primarily written for moms and wives. Proverbs, Proverbs 31 was primarily written for young men. And to understand what's happening in Proverbs 31, you really have to understand that as the backdrop and the context. That as we've seen throughout, this is the, the older sages of Israel gathering the young men of Israel. And so 
what we see is really multi-layered applications that can be made. There's not a single person in here that Proverbs 31 isn't relevant to in your life. It is instruction for young men. It is a model for mothers and wives. And it is the personification of what wisdom should look like in all of our lives, except in a real-life context. It's not, it's not wisdom that's just out there somewhere. It's giving us wisdom in a particular picture, in a particular person, and in a particular place, so that we can see what wisdom is supposed to actually look like. And so what we see really in the character of the Proverbs 31 woman is what we ought to recognize in each of our varied contexts specific to them, the application of wisdom. And so what I think we find in Proverbs chapter 31 are some cultural corrections or some cultural critiques that confront the values that we're often being taught and the priorities that we're often being trained on about our families, about our lives, about our marriages, about ourselves. I want us to see at least three of those this morning. I wish we could cover every verse in Proverbs chapter 31. It's just not reality. And so I want us to really focus on these three pictures. The first picture that I want you to see is that mundane faithfulness is heroic. That mundane faithfulness is heroic. If I were to ask you what your purpose as a mother is... Most of you would probably give me the Sunday school, Christianized, baptized answer. My, my role is to raise my children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, to live my life for the Lord, to, to honor the Lord in my, my job and in my uh, domestic responsibilities and all of those kinds of things. But if I asked you if you really felt like you had a purpose, if you really felt like you had a purpose, I wonder how many of you, in, at least in, the heart, in your heart of hearts, would have difficulty being able to answer that question in the affirmative. That there's something about parenting that can cause us to lose our sense of purpose isn't there. Because so much of parenting is mundane and menial, it seems. There's diapers, there's, there's, uh, there's diapers, bath time, breakfast, lunch, dinner, diapers, sleep again. There's laundry that's piling up, there's dishes, there's jobs, there's responsibilities, there's homework. And then there's bedtime and then it's repeat. Repeat, repeat, right? And so it's really easy to, to go and to see all of the laundry stacked up in the hampers in the laundry room or mounding over your bed, begging somebody to fold it and to feel as though you've lost your sense of purpose amidst all of the laundry that you see. Well, our culture, our culture looks at the mundane, menial nature of motherhood and many of them are beginning to reject it. Many of them look at the mundane, menial nature of, of parenthood and they, they see it as something that is not honorable, not wonderful, not beautiful, but something that is to be despised, something that is to be avoided so that you can do what you actually want to do. That is, I think, what we see as a symptom of a broader reality that mundane is not revered and celebrated in our culture, is it? It's something to be avoided. You, you're supposed to live a life that is filled with highlight reels and, and mountaintop experiences and grand accomplishments. That if your life seems menial and mundane, then your life probably doesn't matter. And young men think this way probably more than any other group of people on the face of the earth. And so you have this older sage, these wise men of Israel, looking down to the young men and saying, no, 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 no. You need to recalibrate. You need to reset what your value system is. That if you can't appreciate that which seems mundane and menial, then you have no concept of the design of God or the glory of God or the economy of God and the metrics of God and how he measures true greatness and heroism in his kingdom. 
So he looks at the young man and he, he says, first of all, an excellent wife like this, her value cannot be underestimated. Her value cannot be underestimated. Now, I want to zero back in on this reality that this is being primarily written to young men. I don't know how many of y'all have ever hung out with young men, but they tend to be a bit of daydreamers, right? Like, like they, they, they tend to have these like ideas of grandeur and triumphalism and like, let me give you an example. I think I've mentioned this to you before. When I was growing up, I played in the Super Bowl every day. Every day. I assumed I was either going to be Jerry Rice or Steve Young, one or the other. And usually I was, at the same time, Steve Young throwing to Jerry Rice. So that I threw the touchdown and caught the touchdown because I was going to win the Super Bowl. Now, I wasn't five feet tall until the 10th grade, y'all. Maybe I didn't have a grasp on reality. I weighed 85 pounds in the 8th grade. Try being the cool guy in class like that, Okay. Or, or, or you, you think about young men and they have these ideas of, of being able to go and accomplish these great feats like solving world hunger or curing cancer or, or building this great empire of wealth where everybody's going to see them as this great influencer and this, this person that's able to be a benefactor to all of them. That is, young men have trouble appreciating reality, don't they? They have, they have difficulty being able to see what is actually at hand. And that is where the brilliance of this author, as he is talking to this young man about the kind of wife he ought to pursue, begins to shine through. I want you to see some of these pictures, okay? Because I bet these are ways that you've never really seen Proverbs 31 before. Okay, first of all, I want you to think about that word that we hear most often. An excellent wife, or your translation may say a noble wife, or a virtuous wife, okay? The literal translation of the word excellent here is valiant, a valiant wife, a woman of valor, a wife of valor. And here's why I think that's significant. I'm going to write these references down here. Okay, so if you go back and you look at Joshua chapter 6, the, the army of Israel are described as what? Men of valor as they go to take over the Canaan and slay all of the other peoples that they go and they're described as these valiant warriors. The same word. Judges 6. Who's that? That's Gideon. Gideon's getting ready to go and to slaughter all of the Midianites with this tiny little insignificant author, uh, uh, army. And what is he called? Gideon, you man of valor. Remember, he's hiding in the threshing floor and, and the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Gideon, you man of valor. Same word as excellent wife. Here's another example. We could keep going with these, by the way. 1 Samuel 16. You remember what happens in 1 Samuel 17? David slays Goliath. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord comes and he says, this young man, this boy out in the shepherd field, this boy who's killing the lions and the bears with the sling, that is a man of valor. The same word. So here's this older man looking down at his boy and he says, you think the conquering heroes are the majestic ones. You think the warriors who go and slay giants and take on countries and fight down the Midianites, you think they are men of valor? Let me tell you what a heroic person is. A heroic person is the person that does the right thing according to the design of God day in and day out because it's her responsibility to do it. Because she loves her family. Because she fears the Lord. Because she trusts the Lord. He keeps going with this. If you look at verse 11, it says, The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. The word there throughout the Bible is used as uh, spoils. 
the spoils of, ba- of battle, that, that this industrious nature of this wife, this productivity of the wife, it has the same effect as a conquering military to go out. And so he says, who is this wife that you're pursuing? She's not just some domestic housewife. She's not just some person that you can objectify and cast away. She's a conquering warrior. He doesn't stop. Do you see how this is relating to young men? How he's helping the young man to understand who she really is? Verse 14, look at what he says. He uses another picture. She is like, this is who she is, this is what she likes. She's like the ships of a merchant. She brings her food from afar. Now think about the merchant. The merchant is the industrious one. The the merchants were often very wealthy. They lived this romantic lifestyle where they would get on ships and travel to far lands. And they were revered as they came into town. And all of the people would come and to see and hope that they could sell some of their goods to them. These were people that lived adventurous lives. These were people that lived exciting lives and profitable lives. These were people that really were somebody. So who's the wife? Oh, she's like that. She's industrious and cunning and shrewd. She's able to to live this life of adventure for her family to establish something that is significant, that is going to far outlive her. She is one that is to be admired and revered and, and acknowledged. She's like a merchant. He keeps going. Look at verse 15. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Now, why did I circle food? Food seems like like all of you that are like some of you Mother's Day, you got to go home and cook your own Mother's Day lunch, right? And like food is not something you want to talk about right now. I love this. Okay, the Bible translators got really nervous. I, like, like there's universal agreement that the Bible translators got really nervous in translating this particular word for food because they thought that people would take advantage of it or be made really uncomfortable by it. But the word here is actually pray. That this woman is shown to be the nocturnal lioness that awakes while it's still dark outside and goes on the prowl and hunts and kills the gazelle and drags it home for her family. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture? Who is it that is courageous as a warrior, as cunning as a merchant, as ferocious as a lion? It's a good mom. It's a good wife. Her life is not menial and mundane. Her life matters. Her life is significant. In fact, what he's doing is he's taking these domestic realities and he's, he's dragging them into the spheres of heroism. She's not just a wife. She's not just a woman. She's a heroine. She is one that is to be championed. She is one to be celebrated. She is one to be acknowledged. It is to be realized that what she does is of eternal consequences. That she, when she is living according to the design of God, is living just as according to her design as the warrior who goes out to battle or the merchant who goes out to shop or the lion who goes out on the prowl that she is in the economy of God heroic for what she is doing. See, God, he doesn't define heroics the way that we do. He doesn't define heroics with plaques and with trophies or with grand resumes and promotions. He doesn't doesn't define heroics by who's on Time magazine or who receives a medal of honor from the president. 
He defines heroics by who is willing to live faithfully according to his design, to his glory, and the fear and love of him because they are living a life that is offered up to him. That by the metrics of God, mom, you are a hero. By the metrics of God, the laundry that is stacking up and the the diapers that you're changing and the meals that you're preparing and the work that you're doing and the way that you're providing and rising up early and staying up late, that is heroism in the kingdom of God. Don't you dare underestimate it, sister. Don't you dare underestimate your value in the kingdom of God and brothers and children in this room. Don't you dare undervalue and underestimate the glory of the heroics that are happening every single morning in your house when you wake up and there is breakfast on the table and there is somebody that is there to hold you when you're broken and to to help you with your homework. That is as heroic as a warrior going off to battle in the economy of God. Can Can I bring this in and make a big picture connection now? So we've been doing this series called The Big Story, and we're beginning to see something of the big story here in Proverbs chapter 31. So we see her value cannot be underestimated, and we see her heroism is not to be underappreciated. Look at what it says in verses 28 and 29. It says her children rise up, and they call it. They don't just think it. You understand. They call her. They say it. She's blessed. Call her blessed. Her husband also, he, he realizes it, but doesn't just realize it. He praises her. He says it. He voices his appreciation. In fact, it appears as though the children are following in the pathway that the dad has established. And he says, many women have done excellently, but you surpassed them all. Many women have lived valiantly, but you're the most courageous of all of them. You're the greatest hero of all of the moms. And what we begin to see here is that the Proverbs 31 woman, there's always this discussion. Who is the Proverbs 31 woman? Do you know who the Proverbs 31 woman is? It's the Genesis 2 woman. It's the Genesis 2 woman. It's the woman that was put together and dignified with the image of God from the rib of the man that God places in the garden to be the completion and the complement and the co-heir and the co-laborer of her husband, the companion to her husband. He places her there perfectly before there is sin and corruption and brokenness. There in the delight of the garden according to the ways and the designs of God. And when she is taken from the rib of her husband, And she is standing before Adam for the very first time in Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember what the first thing that he says is? At last. At last. At last, bone of my bones. At last, flesh of my flesh. At last, there is one that has been given to me by Almighty God that is going to make everything better and richer and more wonderful. There is one with a dignity like me and responsibility like me and roles like me that now I can live in community with her and we can press on and glorify and populate this earth with the glory of God together. Together. That is what we begin to see here is that when you have a husband who rightly recognizes a wife who has been designed and dignified with the image of God by God, the natural impulse, the response dating back longer than there has even been sin and curse and brokenness in this world is the husband sees his wife and he praises her because a gift from God like this, there is none greater than that. Brothers, are you living up to your design in that way? Are you living up to your design in that way? 
Not do you think your wife is wonderful. Not do you think your wife is a hero. Not do you think that your wife is making your life more complete and better and a a great companion and a great co-laborer and a great compliment and all of those things. But do you praise her? Because when you praise a wonderful gift that God has given you because God has given it, you are in that moment worshiping the Lord himself. It was right and proper for Adam to praise Eve there in Genesis chapter 2. And when you have a wife who is seeking to live according to the designs of God and the ways of God in your household, it is right and proper for her kids and her husband and her family to rise up and say, many women have lived valiantly, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. You are our heroine in this house. Let's look at the next cultural correction that we see here. Selfless devotion is satisfying. Not only is mundane faithfulness heroic, but selfless devotion is satisfying. You know, my experience and conversations tell me that most moms, and not just moms, dads and teenagers too, are living lives that they would not classify as being satisfying. That they don't live lives that, that in other words, they delight to live and that they enjoy living. That, that their lives are less than what they thought they would be. Their lives are less than what they expected them to be. And you know, our culture has a way of addressing this. What does our culture say to the person who who is attempting to, to live a more satisfying life? It says, look inward. Look inward. Think more about yourself. What you need is more time with the girls. What you need are more trips with the guys. What you need are, are, are more rounds of golf in your life. What you need is a better vacation or a longer vacation or another vacation. And I bet that there are many of you who have tried that. And yeah, those things are fun in the moment, and those things are nice in the moment, and nothing is even wrong with those things. But they don't make you feel satisfied, do they? They don't leave you satisfied, that's for certain. Because eventually you come home. And when you come home, your guilt isn't helped, it's compounded. Your shame isn't helped, it's compounded. Because you think everybody else seems to be able to have a a satisfying life and get their responsibilities done. But I'm over here and I'm trying to do everything I can to be happy. And I have done all of these things and yet here still, I am dissatisfied. And I'm empty and I'm searching and I am not at peace. Could it be that when we live according to the wisdom of the world, we reap the world's false promises? Because you cannot pursue the design of God while living according to the wisdom of the world. And so what we see in Proverbs chapter 31 is a woman who is actually living according, idyllic, certainly. Being portrayed in, in, in probably ways that are not revealing of all her flaws and, thought, and that we know would have been there. But a woman, best she can, living a life that has been offered to God. And what do we see in her? That she looks outward, not inward. She looks outward, not inward. That, that is, that she is resistant to this impulse that, that our culture, and, and not just ours, like we inherited this. This isn't new. Selfishness is central to the corruption of humanity. But Proverbs chapter 30, or 31 verse 30, tells us that she's a woman who fears the Lord. How do we know? 
other than it telling us there that she fears the Lord? Why is it that it comes and it summarizes all of these things that she's done and all of the way she, she rises when it's dark and goes to bed after, after it's gone, after she provides for her kids and goes and gets the food and works at the spindle and opens her hands to the needy? Like it gives us all of these descriptions. And then as a summary in verse 30, it says that, a woman who fears the Lord is worthy of praise. This is a woman who fears, how do we know that? See, you can tell whether or not someone fears the Lord by the priorities of their life. You can tell whether or not someone fears the Lord by the priorities of their life. You see, when you, when you begin to actually behold this stupendous, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, hair-raising glory of God, it draws your eyes upward and it draws your eyes outward Greatest command, second greatest command, but it never draws your eyes inward, does it? In fact, if you are looking inward, if you are looking within for strength, if you are looking within for answers, if you are looking within for satisfaction, you will never find it there because looking within, you can never see the glories of God for all that it is so that his, your fear and love of God and your amazement at God can set you in your proper context. But that's what we see with this woman. I want you to notice this. There, there, there is an order to her priorities that we see in Proverbs chapter 31 that I think we see found throughout the scriptures. Okay, so first of all, and this is how they come to us in the text, verse 11, it says that her, the heart of her husband trusts in her. All right, so there's the first relationship that we see, that, that she has a concentration and a focus on her husband, that her husband is her primary allegiance. And of course, we're looking at this from the wife's perspective, but the same would be said of the husband. His primary allegiance is to his wife. Genesis chapter 2, God begins to weave together society. He doesn't begin with the church. He doesn't begin with parents and children. God begins to weave the society together with the thread of husband and wife. That the primary relationship between those who are married on this earth, according to the design of God, is husband and wife. That the wife's first allegiance is to her husband. The husband's first allegiance is to his wife. And so it says that her heart trusts her husband, or her husband's heart trusts her. She's constant. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Now look at second. So second, what we see is her household, don't we? See this? She rises while it is yet not night and provides food for her household. In household would have been her maidens. In household would have been her children. It would have been all of the, the, the varied people that were dependent upon her for, for some good. And so if her husband is her primary allegiance, her household is her primary responsibility. Of course, again, from a macro perspective, she and her husband have the same responsibilities. They have the responsibility to be in allegiance with one another. They have responsibilities to oversee the roles of, uh, to oversee the household together. Though from a macro level, their roles are very different. That's not really what, what I want to get into this morning. But the, so from a macro perspective, they're sharing all these things equally. So from a micro perspective and how this works out in everyday life, it actually looks different. Now, verse 20, we see the, the third one. She opens her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hand to the needy, all right? So we see a third priority, husband, household, needy, that she literally works her finger to the bone, and she wakes up early, and she goes to bed late, and she, she uh, realizes that what she has is of great profit, and she's competent, and she goes and she sells these things. But all of these things are not for selfish gain primarily. 
All of these things are not so that she can drive a nicer Tahoe, primarily. All of these things are not so that she can go on better vacations, primarily. These things are so that she can fulfill these responsibilities and be open-handed with those who need. That it is a drive in her life, a desire in her life, a delight, I think we're going to see, in her life. To be open-handed with the needy. And I love this, verse 22. We see the fourth. She makes bed coverings for whom? For herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. It'll go on to say that she clothes herself with strength and dignity. And so we see, and, it, and this is important because the pendulum can swing too far the other way. It is right for self-care. I, I don't want you to hear me say that. It is right for you to have time away. It is right for you, mom, to have a Sabbath. And dads, you've heard me say you ought to be keeping your kids so that your wife can go and have time to herself. It's just that it's not the first priority of the design of God. What you ought to have in a marriage are two different people who are starting with one another and then landing on themselves. And if you have two people who are concerned with the well-being of one another, nobody gets left out. Nobody gets left out. And so what we understand, according to Proverbs, that's a very crooked circle. What we understand of Proverbs is that all of this is in the context of her fear of God or her relationship with God. That is the context, and we could even take it a step further. Because this is happening in Israel, people think, well, where's the church in here? Where's the, my relationship with God character? In Israel, all of that was the backdrop of reality. All of Israel was, was thought of in this context of a religious faith-based community. And so everything that she's doing is in the backdrop of her faith. That is in the context of her fear of God. Because she fears God, these are the realities in her life. And so what we see is her working according to the design of God. And I want to propose to you that she's working according to the design of God. And that as a result, she's experiencing a satisfaction in her life that vacations and new clothes and, and more time away cannot give. Cannot give. Question, is she really satisfied? Is she, the author certainly thinks so. The author certainly thinks so. Listen to how he describes. She has her husband's heart. The word trust here is only used two times in the entirety of the Old Testament to not refer to man trusting God. That's the extent to which her husband trusts her. She has her husband's heart. She does him good, not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. The word willing, if you were to see this, it means literally the delight of her hands, the pleasure of of her hands, that she works because it's her pleasure to do so. She, it's kind of got that Chick-fil-A, like, you know, we got some Chick-fil-A folks here. It's like, she works and she serves, and she says, this is my pleasure. Whoa, that's weird. She says, it's, it's my pleasure, this is, this is my honor, this is my desire, that, that, that she's not just working because she has to, she's not working begrudgingly, she's working with willing hands, with eager hands, with earnest hands, and she finds satisfaction in her children, and she finds satisfaction in her task, she finds satisfaction in her responsibilities. It goes back to the dignity of work we talked about from Proverbs chapter 6. We see she is an ant, and she is not a sluggard, right? Verse 21, listen to this one, see if you can relate to this. She is not afraid. She is not afraid. She's not anxious. She's not overwhelmed. She's ahead. She's not afraid of snow. She's not afraid of winter that's coming. She's not afraid of, of the difficulties that lies ahead because she is offering her life fully in the fear of God to God, giving her everything that she's taking responsibility for what she needs to take responsibility for. And she knows that offering the fullness of her life up to God, that she has done everything that she is responsible to do, and she can trust the Lord with the rest. And so here she is, and she's not afraid. She's not afraid. In fact, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs. She's not even uptight. 
She laughs at the time to come. She's, she's at peace. She's able to cut up. She's able to have a joyful house. She's able to, to joke with her husband and flirt with her husband and joke with her, her, her kids. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness. Does that word kindness stand out to you? We've seen that one before. Has said, loving kindness, steadfast love, loyal love, the kind of love that the Lord loves his people with. That's the kind of love that's characterizing her life. She is filled with loving kindness toward her family. That is what we see. It's a woman that most of the women I know would trade lives with. She wakes up early and she goes to bed late and she works her finger to the bone, but she's not afraid. She works at the pleasures of her hands. She's not overwhelmed. She's not, she doesn't feel uptight. Do you think she's satisfied? She's satisfied. You see, I think prioritizing others is not just godly, it's healthy. Prioritizing others is not just godly. It's healthy because it's the way that God designed you. There is no dichotomy in God's mind that you have to prioritize godliness and well-being. The definition of shalom, this whole person peace will not allow it. It is to have peace in all of your relationships, in the, in the ways of your life, in the outer person, in the inner person. It is to have peace that surrounds and characterizes the wholeness of your life. And so the whole thrust of Proverbs is that if you will live according to the designs of God, in the ways of God, in the fear of God, that you can have a life that is both satisfying and productive, that you can have a life that is offered to the Lord, but is delightful to you inwardly, that will enable you to thrive in the way that God would thrive. So are you saying, Cody, that we should never do anything that might contradict our nerves? Or con- of course not. What I'm saying to you is if there is a missionary in a prison, malnourished in Afghanistan, who is fully satisfied in God, he is healthier than the billionaire contemplating suicide because of the emptiness of the treasures that he has surrounded himself with. I'm saying that if you will commit yourself to living according to the designs of God, keeping your your gaze upward and outward, that you will find a life that is far more satisfying than the world that comes to you and says that you need to think about yourself more and look at yourself more and turn inward more. That the design of God is the greater way for human flourishing. And when you have a marriage where you have two people committed to this kind of outward living, now, now you have something. Now you have what I read in the beginning, this mysterious Ephesians 5 picture of the gospel being proclaimed and preached through the marriage. So she looks outward, but he looks inward. Now, I just said you're not supposed to look inward, but I don't mean within himself. I mean inward within her. So, so you'll forgive my crude graphic, graphic here. It's the, be, the best. I, John Blanton's skin's going to crawl when he sees this. But I wanted you to see, okay, so the Hebrews often wrote in something called a chiasm or a chiasmus. Okay, so what it means is, is you have the way this poem is structured. You have line A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and then it goes back. And so you have these correspond with one another. Do you see that? They're saying the same thing the whole time. And the reason is, is it leaves one isolated And the one that leaves isolated is really the main point of everything that the author is saying. And so what we can see, if we are able to to put and and glimpse this in the direction that the author originally intended, is that verse 23, and I hope I don't get in trouble here, verse 23 is the main point 
of Proverbs chapter 31. And it stands out like a sore thumb when you're reading it. All of a sudden, you have all these talking about the wife, talking about the, the mother, talking about the responsibilities, talking about all the, the, the way that she's living according to God's design and being satisfied and all that. And then it gets to this verse right in the middle, verse 23, and it's talking about the husband. It says, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, why is, why is it like that? What's he trying to say? First of all, he's not writing this and addressing this primarily to the husband because he matters more or because he's more valuable or because he's more significant. It's just the audience with which he's talking. So he's applying it specifically to the audience. If I'm preaching to teenagers, I apply it differently than if I'm preaching to, te- to children, and I apply it differently than if I'm preaching to you guys, right? So he's applying it specifically in a, in a specific context. And here's what he's trying to say. Do you want the life that God has for you? Do you want what, what you've aimed at? Do you want to live with the kind of peace in your home that enables you to take responsibilities within the community and to be a ruler in the land and to be an elder in the land and to, to maximize all of the opportunities that you foresee? Well, then you better not underestimate the importance of finding the right wife. Because everything, and you know this, everything in your life starts with your family, doesn't it? Everything. Your job, your uh, aspirations, your ambitions, your, your understanding of who you are, the way that you feel about so many different things of life, all of it begins with the family. It's the building blocks for all of life. It goes back to Genesis chapter 2, what we were talking about. The, the very thread with which God wove together all of society. And so do you hear what he's saying to, the, to this husband? This is, gonna, this is a young man of means. This is a young man of opportunity. This is going to be one of the rulers of Israel. And he says to him, Charm is deceitful. Beauty is, beauty is vain. A woman who fears the Lord, that's what you're looking for. That is, don't let your eyes deceive you. Don't, don't let your mind run away with you. Don't let your hormones take control of your relationship. You need to find the one. She is one worth pursuing, verse 10. She is a precious jewel, a ruby that you're supposed to go after and look for and search for because she's rare. There aren't many of them. They are hard to find. Don't settle for the seductress, the forbidden woman with the honey dripping from her lips as we've seen in Proverbs Chapter 5, no, 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 young man. You go and you pursue a woman who is hard after the Lord. You go and you search and you mind to see if in her heart, in her soul, there is the fear of God in there. And you know what that reveals? Whether or not that young man fears the Lord. Do you want to know whether or not you fear the Lord? What is your heart drawn to? What are you attracted by? You see, the Bible talks a lot more about dating than what we want to give it credit for. It's just that we don't usually like the advice that it gives. So what the Bible is saying is that the person, the young man, the young woman who fears the Lord, do you know who they're attracted to? Not someone who is outwardly beautiful. That's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. The Lord has given that to us as a gift. We ought to be physically attracted to our mate. Is it someone who is charming? There's nothing wrong with charm, but charm can be deceitful. Liars can be charmers. Con men can be charmers. Charming is deceitful. No, 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 no. What you need, if you are a person who is devoted to the Lord, if you love the Lord with all of your heart and you walk in the fear of the Lord, what you want is not somebody who just looks good, not somebody who just sounds good. You want somebody who walks and loves God. Is that what you're attracted to? 
See, that's, that's the context for the family to make sure that mom and dad, husband and wife are headed in the same direction. How do you know if you're headed in the same direction? If both of you have your gaze upward in the fear of the Lord and both of you are walking in the ways of the Lord, then you are certainly headed in the same direction. I want you to write this down, young people. I want you to write this down. Listen to me. You will not stay up at night one day over the charm or the physical attraction of your spouse. But the character, the character of your spouse, that's what's going to make your life miserable or joyful. The character. And if you don't believe me, there are brothers and sisters that are scattered throughout this congregation that have scars and wounds and traumas and hardships and difficulties that will testify to that fact. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It isn't going to last. But the character of a man or a woman that loves God with all of their heart, with all of their mind, with all of their strength, oh, that is a gift. That is a heroism that will transform your family into something that will be life-giving. Life-giving. Going forward. So what are you attracted to? What are you drawn to? The final thing I want you to see this morning, the final way I want you to see that this passage corrects our thinking is that countercultural living is wise. Countercultural living is wise. I, I have in my mind here not just bringing Proverbs 31 to a close, but bringing all of the book of Proverbs to a close. Most people believe that Proverbs chapter 31 was written to combat a classical Greek reality and the way the classical Greek culture at the very same time revered and thought of its women. Women in classical Greece were, were thought of, they were supposed to be silent and passive and kind of people that are not connected to family life or to community life and they played no real role. They were objectified really in every sense of the word. And so the Hebrew people were designed by God to know that men and women are equal image bearers of God and bear equal dignity of God and have roles that have been assigned to them by God so that they can complement one another and complete one another and bring joy to one another and bring at the same time delight and joy and glory to the Lord by living according to that design. And so Proverbs chapter 31 is written so that God might take the gaze of his people and cast it upward, that they might live with a higher aspiration than the culture that is around them. And so this text comes to a head by asking us and confronting us with the very same question it was confronting these, these, uh, these Israelites 3,000 years ago. Will you allow culture to determine your values or will you look into the Lord? Will you allow culture to determine your values or will you look unto the Lord? Will you trust secular academia and political pundits and social media influencers and what they say about gender and roles in the home and, and the relationships of spouses and the, and the avenues to peace? Or, or, or will you come to the Lord and trust in the Lord, the design of God and the wisdom of God and say as though, even though it puts me on a narrow path that is hard and against the currents of this world, even though it sets my gaze so that I cannot enjoy all of the fleeting pleasures that are here, it aims me higher, that my life might actually have significance, that I might see my purpose according to the design of God and might actually be satisfied, that I might live in a way that enables me to flourish in the way that God has intended me to flourish. You see, Proverbs chapter 31, throughout Proverbs, we've seen wisdom personified, that it's like a woman, it's like the seductress, it's like this person and that person. Proverbs 31 
wisdom isn't so much personified as it is incarnated. This is a real woman living a real life in a real context. And she is living against the culture. She is living against the currents of her day and her era and her society. And she is living according to the wisdom of God. And so it is showing us incarnate. Here is a person who has to live and she has to live in contradiction to the culture. But you know, a thousand years after this, wisdom would be incarnated a second time. And wisdom would be incarnated a greater time. That proverb, the Proverbs 31 wife is a foreshadowing and a prefiguring of Christ who was himself the word, the wisdom of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. And his culture so, felt so contradicted and confronted by him that they crucified him and nailed him to the cross. But the Lord says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the Lord took that which was the foolishness to man and used that which was foolishness to shame the wise being the cross, because Christ Jesus, wisdom incarnate, would be raised again. And that means, that means that the cross, which was the foolishness which shames the wise, is the very pathway which us as moms and dads and boys and girls and teenagers and sons and daughters, that we can have wisdom today. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 